you so much for joining us for this very special episode of Sarah Speaks. We are joined today by Beth Jones, who is a trauma-sensitive yoga instructor, as well as a regular yoga instructor and a college writing teacher. So Beth, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here, Alex. Thank you so much for asking. I um, really started this podcast because I was so interested in women from all professions and hearing their stories and their journeys. And we've heard from insurance brokers and elected officials and um, people in the media. And one area we haven't gotten to yet, and you are the first of what I hope will be several, are women who are working in the helping fields. Um, And you, with your work, it's so relevant. Your work is so relevant in what some of the public narrative is today. Well, you know, I'm a Maine native, and I grew up in rural Maine, and uh, both my parents are in the helping, you know, professions. They were. My mother uh, was an old school nurse trained at Mercy Hospital, um, and my dad was in public relations and went into um, uh, social work and worked with people with um, chemical dependencies. And uh, <clears throat> so I always had a model for the helping field. Um, and I got into yoga probably 30 years ago at a uh, writing retreat uh, somebody there was teaching yoga and I just fell in love with it mm-hmm. and it uh, became an obsession and then it became my medicine and I started to uh, attend a training at Kripalu which is in Massachusetts and I did that for a couple of years and became a teacher through Kripalu and then um, got a hold of a, a information about something called the trauma center down in uh, Brookline Mass and they had just started a yoga program for people um, who were dealing with trauma symptoms. And there was, there was a lot of uh, preemptive work through Bessel van der Kolk, who is one of the specialists in trauma, a brilliant, brilliant uh, researcher and psychologist. Uh, so through his program and through this new yoga program, they developed trauma-sensitive yoga in Brookline in that program. And that's, I decided to do it because I had uh, been working with a lot of families with special needs kids and uh, was impacted by how much uh, of the event of living day to day with medical health needs and so forth impacted me- mental health. I really saw that and I started thinking about well, how, how can yoga help because yoga helped me so much, mm-hmm. how can it help? So David Emerson is my mentor to, to this day and he was my first teacher in this work. So tell, for the folks who are listening who don't know, tell us a little bit about what Kripalu is, because not everybody knows Kripalu. I have been to Kripalu, and I've done a <laughs> workshop there, and it was life-changing for me. So yeah. tell everyone a little bit Kripalu, about it. The Kripalu Center um, was an ashram in the 70s, and uh, Swami Kripalu, who's an actual guy, he came over. His, his name uh, means compassion. And they developed a, at this, this ashram in, in uh, the Berkshires, they developed a... a kind of yoga that was using the hatha shapes, the hatha forms of yoga, but um, kept pushing the, the, uh, the idea of inquiry. So the yoga student would be meditating while doing the forms, which was 
a little unusual. And uh, from there, choosing on their own what to do next. So we call it a movement inquiry. That's a great base for trauma-sensitive yoga because you're putting the emphasis on your own agency, you know, your own mind-body connection, like, ooh, I want to do this instead of just the straight-up triangle, you know, or what have you. So that's, Kripalu is really about um, uh, finding your own energy, your own prana. Listening to your own voice, your inner to your voice. Own voice. Very empowering uh, model of yoga. One of the um, things that I should mention is that one of the reasons that I'm so interested in this is I actually became a yoga teacher um, during my um, Eat, Pray, Love vision quest. <laughs> I um, worked for a wonderful company and left and really, I think I was 36 or 37, was burned out. I'm one of those women that just mm -hmm. worked and worked and worked right. until I dropped. And so I took 18 months off and one of the things I did was go to yoga school and really delved into the practice, which has benefited me to this day and really helped define me for this kind of second half of my life. Great. And um, and I've taken your classes mm -hmm. and I've, you know, taken all kinds of wonderful teachers. And for me, yoga has been just a guiding light for me. It's always there. I can walk away from it if I need to for a little while, I mean, or I can go back so to it whenever I need you know, to. But it's in a tool in my toolbox, right? Mm -hmm. Veterans, it really delivers. It really does, um, yeah. especially and now that we've it is total mind, fully body, um, spirit, Afghanistan connection. And, so and I don't know anywhere um, where you get all of that now come other than in yoga. And the funny thing is, PTSD in great huge numbers now that we may or may not be prepared for as a country. But also, if you look in a different way, Simone Biles or any of the Olympians that, you know, drew or athletes recently that have drawn lines and said, no, this moment is not good for me. I, as Simone Biles, is a trauma survivor herself and has said, I want to define what I'm, what role I'm going to play, and that won't be being on stage right now. That'll be a different role. That must have been, I'm going to assume, encouraging to you as someone that's in that line of work. Was it surprising to see that? Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, there's so much on the line, and what she did was she broke with history. Mm -hmm. You know, the history is to suck it up, Buttercup, and just yeah. keep going and push yourself. Um, and that's, by the way, is is a way to disembody. You know, and she was aware midair. I, I was reading about her last night. Uh, midair, she, she realized, I'm going to hurt myself again. She kept, she kept leaving her body, and there's a picture of her where she's looking askance. She's in mid vault air. It's brilliant, and she's looking, and then she lands. But she, I guess, she just barely lands, and she has this thought, mm. I have to stop this for my team. I can't, I can't compete. I'm mm. not available. Basically, that was her recognition. And I'm paraphrasing, but I mean, that is a huge moment for everyone watching her. How does that happen? You know, and then, but the, the next thing is she took right action for herself. So she was enacting this idea of agency in the middle of everything. 
in front of millions. And what a lesson, because so many of the women we've spoken to already and that I'm, you know, talking with in advance of new episodes we'll be doing, you know, women drive themselves into the ground Mm -hmm. (laughs) until they hit a breaking point. The role model has been go until you drop. drop. Yeah. Drop. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Jinx, buy me a Coke. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's, that's right. And go until you drop. But that, like I said, that, that is an actual, you're kind of enacting or reenacting your, your traumas to just ignore the symptoms of burnout, ignore the symptoms of uh, need, trauma, which could be um, you can't keep a thought together for very long. There, there is a whole bunch of red flags. Uh, you, you, you start to hurt yourself. You make choices that are harmful, uh, whether it's addiction to something, whether it's addiction to drinking, smoking, uh, coffee, uh, sex, uh, or uh, hitting the vault all the time, you know, doing athletics. You, mm-hmm. you could consider that uh, kind of moving food addictions. Food addictions, absolutely. Shopping, gambling. All ways to kind of keep you from actually uh, sequestering inside internally and taking care of, of your mental health, which affects everything. Your body, your relationships, they usually suffer, the outward, the outward stuff usually suffers and, and leaves its mark. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So where do you think the place of yoga and trauma yoga intersects with business? I know that's a broad question. So I, over the years, I've been asked to come in and do in-services in, mm. in offices and uh, at, the, at the VA as well uh, for the therapists working with um, women vets and the men. And uh, I think that's been helpful in terms of, uh, you know, the thing is about trauma-sensitive yoga, it's, an, it's, an, it's called interoception. That's the experience that you were kind of working with. The interoception is the invitation of the mind to focus on sensation in the body in the present moment. That's really it in a nutshell. That's really hard to do. It's meditation, and if uh, physical sensation is triggering to you, if, if uh, it's not a comfortable thing, if it actually agitates you or makes you panic or break down into emotional recall, um, these are reasons to not want to do anything present moment, right? Ooh, stove hot. No, I don't want to go in there. And right. So, so in an office, in a workplace, or with a veterans, uh, counselors and therapists, I was working um, in a way of just kind of training them, uh, like this is what we're doing in this trauma-sensitive yoga so that they could refer uh, veterans. But what I found was that um, it is so individualistic that anybody can do it, uh, but they realized how difficult it is to, to stop everything and go inward and, and hold that moment within the body and notice how you feel. And, and, but how restorative it could be, mm. the calming effect of that, because they live with vicarious trauma, you know. Mm-hmm. And I don't know anyone right now who isn't living in some state of absolute fear, mm-hmm. you know, whether because or not of... they're going to lose their job, whether or not mm-hmm. they're going to get COVID, the variant, whether or not their best friend, their loved ones, their, their daughters, their sons are going to get COVID, whether or not... Um, I mean, I think we could talk about children mm. in particular and the mental health that uh, teachers are seeing, the mental health shifts. Um, I was told yesterday by a teacher who said, you know, I'm looking at psychiatric beds for children in 7th and 8th oh grade. Oh, my God. And I was, You've got to be kidding. You know, 
this COVID thing has had a, it's had quite a quite an impact. So, tell me, what can businesses do? Mm-hmm. What can professional associations do for their members, for their member businesses? What can companies do Great. to be fostering an environment that is sensitive to people with trauma, which is a very high percentage, I'm mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. And what can what are best practices? Can you talk through best practices or resources that should be provided? Well, or? Only in the limited way that I know, yeah. you know, through through David Emerson and the work that I've been doing, uh, studying uh, at the Trauma Center, which is now the Center for Trauma and Embodiment, or Embodiment and Trauma. Um, but um, there are certain things that that tenets for our our practices in those little forty five minute classes. Um, we have to use language that's accessible. Mm. Explain what that means. Uh, no Hindu, uh, no airy fairy stuff. You know, to, to use language that's accessible. So so you could uh, trans transpose that as uh, language that might be, uh, you know, if you're if you're a boss of somebody and you're using highfalutin words, so to speak, and you're 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 kind of talking down. Patronizing language is is something that could be seen. As an authoritative, you know, power pull. The th- the thing that identifies trauma most is an is a is a power dynamic. Mm-hmm. All right, is somebody feeling like um, they don't have any power in in their position, and is the the uh, boss or authority authority being using power um, kind of abusively or. Uh, potentially abusively, you know, leading them into things that may not be appropriate or safe. Those are those are really basic things in any any relationship. Mm-hmm. You can you can you can put that you transpose that onto a, uh, an intimate relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. The power dynamic is a really important thing to look at, and how do you um, ameliorate that? Because there is always a boss. There's always an authority. You know, so it's incumbent upon the leaders of organizations to actually do some reflective work. Yeah, I mean, there's always Title IX. You know, I think is, is that correct mm-hmm. for for sexual harassment, and uh, there are um, really good aids. I've noticed um, through my teaching at Thomas College, we always have to have these trainings about just that very thing: power dynamics, uh, sexual harassment. Um, HIPAA, all those, uh, all the privacy rights and so forth, and they come through a software program that offices could get, hmm. and it's just it's a nice edification because then you go, oh, this is this is what uh, can happen in an office, and it could be as simple as how come that person never gets picked to go lead a conference, or how come mm. that person, uh, you know, has great ideas and this this uh, manager or boss isn't listening to him. What what is that, you know? Tell me about some mindfulness, su- right? Mindfulness well, absolutely. and practice. Yeah. yeah. Tell me about some success stories that you've seen. Tell me about how you've seen the work that you do or someone do the work that you without crying? With no, not without crying. Crying is part of the process from what I believe, but anyway, but tell me about people who've gotten through the woods, you know, and changed their lives. Tell me some of your either anecdotally or well, I have a couple of people that come to mind, and um, uh, several, but, but I'll, I'll focus on one who's a boy. Um, I have been teaching uh, trauma-informed yoga, not really the, the, the uh, <clears throat> very strict guidelines of trauma-sensitive yoga, because these, these are boys of day one, the day one recovery program, which 
is a kind of a special um, program that sits inside of a school a district. And um, I was teaching um, up at the Hinckley campus for almost 10 years before they closed. Oh, wow, yeah. Um, through COVID, um, they couldn't find people to work with them, with the boys, oh. which just about broke everybody's heart. But that's another cost of the COVID thing. So, um, but this one boy, it's a six-month program, and um, this one boy whose name I'll call Ben, I'll call him Ben, um, he was probably 16, and um, he came from uh, a situation where he was chronically using um, drugs, opiates, whatever it was, uh, and may have had a model at home. His parents were probably users and so forth. And so this, uh, this six-month program was a, a residential program where he could kind of unlearn what he learned mm -hmm. at 16. And, uh, and he didn't believe in anything about himself. He, he was just sort of brought to his knees by the fact that he couldn't go back to his old life. He couldn't see the, the uh, drug dealer friend um, anymore who, who had groomed him to be his best friend. His whole identity was changing. He was young at this formative age. And, um, and I watched him work through it, and, and he hated yoga. And I think he was the one who, came, who, who got kicked out and then came back. He came back into the program a few months later. And I watched him transform in my little, through my little window, my little lens of yoga. I watched him start to make choices on the mat that were all his. Mm. If that makes any sense. It makes, well, as a yoga person, it makes sense to me. It's a huge thing where he identifies with his body, his movements, and isn't asking, is this right? You know, because most of them start, I don't know how to do this. You know, I hate this. And how do you do this? Um, they also had an, an incredible clinical person um, uh, who would practice with us. But this kid, Ben, was um, growing week to week after. He just hit his stride, and he graduated. Mm. He graduated. Um, and then I saw him uh, in a school program somewhere else. Um, he'd, he'd been uh, mainstreamed. And he saw me. He dropped his books, and he ran over and hugged me. And he goes, I'm, I'm doing it, I'm doing it, I'm, I'm, everything's great, I'm, it's so great to see you, Beth, and I just, oh, great to see you, Of course, I mean. Right, it was just a huge moment for me, because I realized, this stuff works. Mm. Even just the little doses of yoga each week, you know, these, these wraparound programs really work, as long as they're trauma-informed, and the power dynamic is clear, and we keep pushing choice and agency, and independence on, on them. What should somebody do if they have someone in their family or someone they work with or a friend that they know has had trauma in their lives and really believes they could benefit from this kind of work? What, how do they reach out? How do they find people in this line of work? I know in Hollowell, Maine, where you yeah. are a practitioner, Google Beth Jones, Hollowell, Maine, but, uh, and look for Beth. But if you're in Kansas or in San Francisco, right. how do we help people? What do you say to them? To, where's, what's our few resources? I tell people to go to the website, traumasensitiveyoga.com, and that's my teacher's website. Uh, and there's, uh, we're up to over 250 facilitators from around the world, and he's got them all listed out. So, um, yeah, you can find a facilitator um, through that. That's so wonderful. Yeah. 
Is there anything that I haven't asked you that I should have asked you? Anything you want to say? No, I, but I, well, maybe, maybe. Um, you know, there, I'm very aware through the work I, I do. Um, I, I work with young women now through day one and who are survivors of sexual abuse. And we're online, which has a whole different thing. But I'm also at Thomas College teaching uh, college writing to kids. And the president there has, they do such an incredibly trauma-informed presentation of what's happening. And they keep us all up to date. They said, they've had uh, trainings called The Kids Are Not All Right. The Kids Are Not All Right. Mm -hmm. That should tell us everything. Mm -hmm. That uh, there's this real shutdown, this, because we're taking agency and, uh, and all those choice-making opportunities, we're really kind of trimming them away from what should be a, a, a stage of incredible bursts of growth. So um, kids are getting depressed. Mm -hmm. And I think for us to be aware of that and just mm -hmm. to um, offer choice whatever as parents, uh, you know, step-parents, maybe older siblings, just understand choice is an elemental thing. And when it's taken away, we risk traumatizing and going into that power dynamic, you know. So in helping kids choose, literally I've heard if a little kid wants to be put down and you're holding them, put the kid down because that's helping them, right? Mm -hmm. Have, have yeah, agency over their own body, right? Yeah. What are some other just kind of examples of things that are choice oriented? Is it, we don't necessarily want the kids to decide what the whole family's having for dinner, right? Because mm -hmm. that's, you know, it might be cupcakes. <laughs> but uh, give me some healthy examples of choice and how we can facilitate choice in our families or in our lives. Oh, gosh. Um, do you want to help a dinner... And in, in the kids, we're talking about kids, maybe. Yeah. Do you feel like cooking today? You know, or just questions instead of demands. Um, the thing is, you have this idea of, of, you know, you also have to have the rigor of, of uh, chores and that kind of thing. But I mean, any time where there's a sensible choice, um, where, uh, you know, do you want to work on math today or, or this hour, or do you want to work on English this hour? So mm -hmm. there's a lot of homeschooling happening right now. Um, I'm, nearly, I'm really not sure. You've kind of asked me a question that could be anything. Mm -hmm. Because uh, do you want to wear this color or that color? You know, if you're working with li really little kids, color choices can be, <laughs> you know, food choices. You don't have to sit next to this person. Or, uh, you know, I don't know. There are just certain things. I, I, I was really moved by Simone Biles' story because um, there was so much of grooming happening with this... this uh, Larry uh, Nasrath, Nas um, Nas is that his name? Nasser. Yeah, Nasser. Um, and he was so clever um, that he, he impacted the parents to believe that it was okay to bring their daughters to the basement of his house in this suburban. I mean. And he was never paid. Um, so choices like, are you uncomfortable? You know, could you ask the child, could, hey, does this make you uncomfortable in any way? It was just sort of like they're athletes. They just go in and they do what they're told. I know, I know that veterans are in that situation. Mm. They're not asked. So when they come back to a healing situation, it's very important to be able to give them the sense that y you matter, what, you have to, what you're feeling matters. That's what Simone Biles did. She showed We owe everybody. her a lot. I matter. Mm -hmm. And my team matters. She did that for her team as well. Mm -hmm. But those choices, those little infinitesimal moments where, geez, maybe... You know, where's that interoceptive feeling, that gut feeling that maybe it's not cool to go into this guy's basement? Yep. And you know what happened, right? You know, oh, it's just, yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe that, 
maybe ask your child <laughs> or stop yourself and say, maybe, maybe that isn't a good idea. And believe your child. We have to get out of this sort of robotic, I gotta do this so that my, my kid's successful thing. Mm -hmm. What if your kid doesn't wanna go to college? What if it's just, they're not wired that way? Right. You know, this whole idea of neurodiversity is brilliant, you know? And I've learned a lot from, from being with young people who live in a different world from what I grew up in. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's humbling because their minds are really out in, in many different directions. And there are so many choices, but they're making them. A lot of them are making them. Mm -hmm. yeah. No to that, yes to this. Giving your kids the freedom mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm. n to make their own choices mm -hmm. with the knowledge they will have value and success mm -hmm. if that's what they follow. Not if they follow the what everyone the thinks script. they should be. Because yeah. so much of what we struggle with as adults is living up to the script of not what everyone else thinks we should be, but what we think mm -hmm. everybody else thinks we should be, right? Like we put ourselves in a prison of a perception that we have created that other people have of us, if that makes any sense. And they don't want to let people down. That's a big thing. And no one else actually expects those things. That's the funny part, right? <laughs> like no one expects that every single person they meet is going to become president of the United States. But so many people believe. There are a lot of there are a lot of young people under the pressure though to um, to achieve. Yeah, and they yeah, they really are to to get to get to college, get the degree, not only get the degree but get good grades. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of reward in in doing all that, but a lot of uh, pressure from families or you know peers. You know you don't know. You don't. Mm -hmm. Beth Jones, thank you. <laughs> this has been a very enlightening half hour, and I can't thank you enough for making time in your day to do this. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's great to see you. Good to see you, too. Thank you for joining us for this special episode of Sarah Speaks. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Sarah Speaks, where we talk with women about business, not about women in business. Please be sure to hit subscribe and stay tuned for upcoming episodes.